Anybody in this room a realtor? Anybody? Okay, well, most of you I trust have bought property, and so you've probably learned by experience or just through pop culture that what are the three major uh, considerations you must take into account when buying a property? Realtors will say there's three considerations that are more important than any other. Anybody know what they are? Location, location, location. And the truth of the matter is, in a similar vein, when it comes to understanding the Bible, I dare say that the three most critical considerations you must take into account when you are trying to understand God's Word is context, context, context. That might strike you as odd. You're thinking, my word, Kyler, surely there's something else that you'd throw in there. If you go wrong here, you're going to go wrong almost everywhere. There is an old adage that says, context is king. Mark that down. I didn't put that in your notes, but if you're taking notes, you might want to write down that simple little phrase, context is king. Because the truth of the matter is, context really is the great variable that's going to help you make sense of what you're reading. As you read God's Word, you will find that if you read a verse outside of context, you are going to be in a world of hurt real quick. In fact, I'll even illustrate somewhat tonight. Do you know virtually every cult originated by violating this simple principle? Do you realize Mormonism Christian Adventism, though not everybody would characterize that as a cult. They would just say it is unorthodox. Uh, Christian science. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. All, virtually, you name it, they are going to be rooted in reading a Bible verse or passage out of context. There are even doctrines of Islam rooted in a misreading of the Bible. Tonight, what I want to do is address two major questions as we consider the whole notion that we need to learn the context to have any hope of understanding the Bible. Two basic things I want to address tonight. The first one is, of course, why we need to do this. I, I kind of tipped my hat already, but let's put a finer point on it. Why do we need to learn the context every time we read the Bible to make sense of it? And then we'll conclude our study tonight by addressing how we learn it, because I know that's why you're here. You're not just learning why you need to do something. You want to get something practical. How do I actually go about this in my, my study? So as we consider why on earth we need to learn the context of any passage we read, I want to just frame it in a few similar ways. One of the reasons why we need to learn the context of the Bible is because learning the context is going to help you and I avoid misinterpreting words. So let me illustrate. If I made the statement, that's a large trunk, what do I mean by that word trunk? Some of you may think, well, he's talking about the trunk of a tree. That would make sense. Some of you are thinking he's talking about the trunk of an elephant. That would be a valid interpretation. Some of you are thinking, he's talking about like my old grandmother's trunk. I had one in my house growing up that was in the middle of the living room. It kind of served as a coffee table. It was large. That makes sense. 
Maybe some of you are thinking, you haven't seen my car. I got a big trunk, and it's going to be perfect for trunk or treat. Now, how do you know which one it is? How can you guys actually know? The truth is, it's impossible to know apart from context clues. You would need some more information for you to help make sense of what that word is. In the same way, imagine if you heard somebody say, stop, you're killing me. What do they mean by that? When they say, stop, you're killing me, maybe your child is saying, you're tickling me. And that's what they mean by, you're killing me, stop. Or maybe it's you're playing Monopoly. And they're like, stop, you're killing me in the board game. Or it could be the most literal sense, they're being physically assaulted and it's an earnest plea to stop with the thought that you're killing me. How do you know? The only way you could possibly understand that word is in context, which is funny because how many of you in this room tonight thought, man, I do not have the intelligence in and of myself to define the word trunk or to define the word kill. I know those words, but you actually don't if you lack any and all context. Let's just illustrate why understanding words, you got to have context to have any grip on it. And I want to show you how this has gone awry in history. For example, do you know that in Muslim theology, it's a relatively orthodox belief that one of the reasons why, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why they believe Muhammad is the great final prophet is because they believe Muhammad is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in the Gospels to send a helper who would come soon, a paraclete in the Greek who would come soon. Let me put it in the words you know. We interpret that word to be the Holy Spirit who is to come. Now, they interpret it as Muhammad. Now, here's the question. Am I right? Or is the Muslim imam right down the street? Now, I know you guys like me, and you kind of decided that you're of this belief, so you're going to say I'm right, but am I? How do I know I'm right? To what degree could I actually look an imam in the face and not just say with blind loyalty, it's actually not talking about Muhammad. It's because there are context clues in the very literature they're interpreting, and we are, that would prove your interpretation isn't valid. There's no good way you could say in context that's what that means. Here's another example. Any of you ever heard of the lady named Mary Baker Eddy? Have you ever heard that name? She was pretty famous years ago. She is the founder of the cult called Christian Science. Have you ever heard of Christian Science? Christian science, in essence, is this pretty odd cult that's downstream from Christianity that teaches basically prayer is what heals you, and like full stop. They don't believe in medical care of any kind, and it's all kind of largely rooted in that view, and there's some other odd stuff. And you'll, you may see like Christian science reading rooms in Charlotte or in other communities. You'll go there to kind of like learn some stuff. Well, one interesting thing she made an argument about and you're going to laugh at this because this is laughable. But she said the name Adam in the Hebrew is Adam. And she said that is a dam, D-A-M. What does a dam do? It's an obstacle. It blocks stuff. 
And Adam was named Adam because he is a roadblock, an obstacle between God and mankind. He screwed it all up. Now, guys, in what universe is that a reasonable interpretation of that word? That's kind of laughable. That's, you could make all kinds of goofy stuff up like that, and who's to say you're wrong? That is misinterpreting a word because she is not reading Adam in context. In context, the Hebrew word Adam literally is talking about one from the earth. It's not talking about a dam. I mean, my word, that's, that's reading English into the original Hebrew. It's insane. Okay, here's another example. I'll give you just two more. Do you all know what Jehovah's Witnesses, they're the ones that knock on your doors. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses, they interpret a verse you know well wrong. They actually believe it's worded differently than we do. How many of you know First John, or not First John, John 1.1, 1, 1, which begins famously, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, in the original Greek, there is missing, I know this doesn't make much sense to most of you if you're unfamiliar with Greek, but there is actually a definite article missing. It's just not there in the original Greek. But there's every contextual reason in the world to interpret that verse as the word was God. No Greek scholar worth their salt would say anything else. But they say, nope, the word was a God. And if you go read a like New Century Bible or something, that's the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, go look up John 1.1 1, 1, and it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was a God. Because they don't believe Jesus was the eternal Son of God. They believe He was created. He came into being at Bethlehem, at the Incarnation. They completely misinterpreted a word because they ripped it out of context. Or, I don't want to step on any toes. I trust there's probably a great many in this room that come from some measure of a Roman Catholic background. But do you want to understand the role, the view of the papacy, of the papal office, of the Pope is rooted in a misinterpretation of a word in a famous verse. Mark in your margin, Matthew 16 and verse 18. This is when Jesus famously looks at Peter and says, You are Peter, Petros, and on this rock I will build my church. Well, the Roman Catholic Church, since about the year 300 or so, has interpreted that word, and on this rock, as referring to Peter himself, since Petros means rock as well. They believe that God is building his church on Peter, and the Pope is the one who holds the seat, the office of Peter. Whereas virtually every other Christian in world history has said it's pretty clear in the context that what Jesus is saying is Peter just confessed Jesus is the Christ in this context, and he's saying, you are Peter, you're a rock of faith, and it's on this faith, on this confession that Jesus is Lord, that I'm going to build my church, which makes complete sense since the one thing that defines the true church from the untrue church is if you are in the true church, you believe like Peter, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Makes complete contextual sense. So that just illustrates the point. I won't belabor it any longer. If you don't know the context, you're going to misinterpret words. But, you know, words aren't the only context. Now we got to get a little wider, because if you just study word by word, my word, it'll take you two lifetimes to get through the Bible. There's, now we got to look at the actual verses, uh, you know, the actual phrases you would find in the Bible. And if you don't take the context seriously, you'll very easily mistake phrases in the Bible. For example, there was a newspaper once that had a picture of the Grand Teton Mountains on the cover. 
beautiful mountainscape. And it had a lovely Bible verse underneath it. And do you know what the Bible verse said? Look to these hills, whence comes my strength. Which is a Bible verse. It's a clause of a Bible verse from the book of Psalms, 121 and verse 1. But do you know what that newspaper was suggesting? Like many Hobby Lobby knickknacks might inadvertently <laughs> suggest. That if you look to the mountains, you're going to get strength from the mountains. Which is inspirational if you like the mountains. I like the mountains. Makes me feel good. Feel invigorated. The problem is, does anybody know what Psalm 121 says? Look to the hills from whence comes my strength. My strength is from the Lord. <laughs> it's not from the mountains. My word, that's ridiculous. You have misinterpreted that phrase altogether because you have lacked the basic context of the verse. You've taken a phrase in isolation. You want to think of a couple other phrases in the Bible that are routinely misinterpreted? How many of you have heard an unbeliever say, judge not, lest you be judged? There's a little phrase. But if you read judge not, lest you be judged in Matthew 7 and verse 1, read it in context, you'll quickly realize Jesus doesn't mean you literally can never make a judgment call on anything. He's talking about judgmentalism. It's a self-righteous, I think there's something wrong with you and I think there's nothing wrong with me. That's what he means in context. Or how many of you have heard, this is very common today in our secular age, how many of you have heard the little phrase bantered around, God is love? Which is straight from the Bible, by the way. That's true. God is love. First John tells us that in his fourth chapter and seventh verse explicitly. The problem is when you read the passage in context, you realize when he says God is love, he doesn't mean full stop. All God is is love, and by love he means he affirms anything and everything you ever feel, want, think, taste, smell. That is not what he means. The context very simply illustrates a difference. So remember, we've got to know the context because if you don't, you're going to misunder misinterpret words. You'll misinterpret phrases, but we'll get a little bit bigger. You're also going to find yourself misinterpreting some verses, and this might start stepping on some toes because this happens a lot. We're going to get further down, and you're going to be like, oh man, I've done this before. We've all done it. When it comes to misinterpreting verses, let me just throw one at you. First John 3 and verse 9. I, I doubt most of you have made this pro uh, mistake, but I've heard people before. The verse reads, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Therefore, some have concluded, if you're a Christian, you won't sin. Which whoever on earth actually thinks that's true of them is beyond me. And there are people that think that. The problem is, if you read that verse in isolation from the verse right before it, 1 John 3 and verse 8 you might draw that conclusion. But verse John 3 and verse 8 actually says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves because the truth is not in us. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. The point is, you're a sinner, but if you therefore just conclude, well, since I'm always going to sin, then, you know, sin all the more that grace may abound. The writer is saying, that's ridiculous. Nobody born of God just needlessly, carelessly practices sin. Do you understand how context, this is, does it take a PhD to understand any of this? This is very clear, it's very simple, you just read it in context. Or here's another one, John 5 in verse 39, probably never heard this one before. But the verse reads, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Jesus is talking 
And in this verse, they think that what Jesus means, when he uses the word scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament, of course, because the New Testament wasn't around yet. And he's saying, you search the Old Testament because you think in it you have eternal life. And they therefore conclude, don't read the Old Testament. It's a waste of time. You won't find eternal life in the Old Testament. You've got to be a New Testament Christian. Who needs the Old Testament? Have you read the Old Testament? It's, not, it's no good. It's boring. It's, it's confusing. Just read the New, except the very next phrase of the verse reads like this. And it is they, the Old Testament, that bears witness about me. <laughs> I mean, you just got to read the simple context to realize you search the Old Testament thinking in it you'll have eternal life, but you're missing the fact that the whole book actually tells you exactly how to have eternal life. It points to me. Simply reading a verse in context will solve a lot of issues lest you misinterpret a word, a phrase, a verse. Let's go to a passage now. Now, this happens way more often than I wish. I don't want to admit it, but the truth is, how many of you have ever read and claimed this verse? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Amen. I name it and claim that verse for my life. The problem is that verse is not written in any meaningful sense to all of us. It is in context a passage that is addressing the people of Israel at a very unique period of time. And so to just conclude... God is always making this plan to prosper you in any given situation is not a justifiable uh, interpretation of it. I don't have this in my notes, but uh, in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk in chapter 1 makes a statement, you'll be shocked, awed, and amazed at what I'm about to do in your day. And I've heard people tell me that that's their life verse. The problem is, you want to know what the very next sentence is? I'm about to destroy you. You just a little bit of context reminds you, you know what, that's no longer my life verse. I don't want that, I don't want to claim that one. Or mark down Ephesians 5. Ooh, now this one's real controversial. Ephesians 5 and verse 22. How many weddings have I been to where I hear the phrase, wives, submit to your husband? That's a tough one. But verse 21 reads, submit to one another in the fear of God. And then the preacher therefore concludes, The verse doesn't really mean wives submit to their husband. It actually means mutual submission, just submit together. Now, here's the trick, and I don't have time to exegete Ephesians 5 if this is a thorn in your side, but the truth is Ephesians 5.21, which says submit to one another, is talking about the church. It is not talking about marriage. Ephesians 5.22 switches gears, and it's talking about marriage. So it's not a justifiable interpretation to read verse 21 and say that's what it means. Because that is not what it's talking about. That's the simple context clues we need to get a grip on. And then lastly, let me just conclude with this argument why. You really need to know the context to even have a grip on the books of the Bible themselves. Because, for example, if you don't, you may read the book of Leviticus and say, Oh crud, I haven't killed a lamb today. I need to go do that. Or you might go read the book of James. Do you remember James? In James 2, he oddly makes this statement that faith without works is dead, and so you show me your faith, or show me your faith by your works, and you might therefore conclude, only reading the book of James, that you know what, we are saved by faith and good works. In fact, in isolation, James can be so misleading that Martin Luther, the famed reformer, wanted to rip James out of the Bible. He didn't think James was a part of the Bible because he thought it contradicted the Apostle Paul and Jesus. 
But the truth is, if you read a Bible book in context, it requires us to read James in the context of all the other authors. If we actually believe there is one ultimate author over the Bible, God himself, the Spirit of God. And so James is not going to say anything that contradicts Paul, who's not going to say anything that contradicts Jesus. And so you bring all that context together and you're like, okay, now I understand what James really meant here. He was actually trying to reiterate that if you think faith does not involve change, there's no fruit of faith, that's fake faith. That's feigned. It's fraudulent. It's false. That's the point Paul's, uh, James is making. It's not that to be saved, you got to do faith and do a lot of good works together, and then you get your way to glory. There's a simple argument. Lastly, if you don't read the Bible in context, all the books... You might read the Old Testament and think the God of the Old Testament is an altogether different God from the New. That's two gods. The God of the Canaanite wars, that looks nothing like the gentle and lowly Jesus. Therefore, two different gods. I don't need the Old Testament. I'm going to stick to this one. By the way, that's very common. How many people want to call themselves red-letter Christians? Which is, I like what Jesus says. Nothing else really, which is actually funny because Jesus says some of the strongest things. In fact, I'm preaching this Sunday at at Mallard Creek, and the text we're preaching, uh, Jesus calls a woman a dog, and he says it pejoratively in a sense. It's a negative, it's a a tough thing. So to be a red-letter Christian isn't actually all it's chalked up to be. In fact, hell is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament, and 11 of them come from Jesus' mouth. So... Jesus says some hard stuff. You need to learn to read the Bible in context. If you do, you will no longer misinterpret words and phrases and and, uh, chapters and, of course, books of the Bible. Now, the big question to conclude our study tonight is how on earth do we do this? You've you've made the point, Kyler, how on earth? Well, what I want to do is I want to use my passage from this Sunday this coming Sunday, as a case study. So you guys are going to be the ones that have a leg up on the rest of the congregation. You will have done just a little bit of study, so when I get up there to preach, you might be able to preempt some of the points I make. This Sunday, we'll preach Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24, and we'll read through verse 30. It's the famed passage of the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus confronting this Canaanite woman. And what I want to do is I want to prescribe some ways to read the context of the Bible, and we'll use this verse as an example. Let me go through some principles, and then I'll apply it to this verse, and hopefully that'll make sense. I'm I'm guessing that when you hear somebody teach you something, it's nice to give you an example. It's that old adage, if you want to teach somebody, model it. I hope to model it for you tonight. Honestly, I wish I had the old school. Y'all remember the overhead projectors with, uh, you know, your teacher would have the marker all over their hand? I wish I had that so that I could actually draw it up there, but... We don't have that ancient technology anymore. I don't even know that you can get them anymore. So I'm just going to have to point it up there, and you'll have to use your mind's eye to picture what I'm describing. The first thing I want you to learn to do is start small. Start as small as you can. When you're reading a passage and you want to make sense of its context, you need to look at the very words themselves. Look for some key words in the verse so you can make sense of it. So, for example, I want you to go to Matthew 7, And let's look, for example, at these verses, and I'd point out some words we'd want to make sense of. Let's look at the first verse. Okay, go to the verse that has the dog in it, because that's what everybody wants to know. Why on earth did Jesus call a woman a dog? I think it's like verse... uh, Go back one. Yeah, there it is. Verse... There it is. I see it. Y'all see that? Yes, Lord. Even the... Well, actually, go back one verse, because that's her reiterating him. 
Okay, Jesus says, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And he's talking about her. Now, when we read that word dog, all of you, particularly you women in the room, might be like, okay, I want to know what Jesus meant by that. Because my 21st century sensibilities sniff a misogynist here. What on earth is he doing? Now, here's where you have to get close. The reason I would say start small and look at the words is, and most of us can't do this. Most of you don't know Greek or Hebrew, and that's okay. There's a lot of resources online that help you solve this. When you go look at the word dog in the original language, there's actually two words for dogs. There's kuon, which means a mangy mutt, one of those scavenger dogs that everybody in the Middle East hates. But there's another word, kunarion, which is the word in this verse. And do you know what that word means? Lovable little puppy that you would have in your house that would eat from your table. Now, that doesn't totally take all the sting out because he still called her a dog, even if it's a cute puppy. I don't want any of you calling me a cute puppy. That still would be a little odd. But there's a reason, and I'm going to save all the reasons why this Sunday, so you just buckle up and wait for what's going, coming there. But the point is you want to actually define what is actually being said. Look at the words, and to understand the words, you're going to have to use some resources to understand what the words mean. Now, here's the good news. You're thinking, Kyler, I don't have those resources. And the truth is, how many of you, by a show of hands, have the Internet? The good news is there is an enormous wealth of resources online, including this one. Everybody take out your pen and write this down. You will thank me later. There is a website called Blue Letter Bible, and go to it. It is a tremendous free resource. It's so helpful that I use it more than most of the books on my shelves. Blue Letter Bible, will you can just type in whatever verse you're trying to understand. Type in the verse that you don't get. It'll show up there and say, I want to know what that word means. Click on that word, and it'll show you that word in the original language. And you're like, I don't know what that actually means or says. But in English, in a very simple way, it gives you a definition. It'll tell you exactly what you need to know. Start small by looking at the words. Now, if you just go word by word, you'll beat your head against a wall. So I'm not suggesting you do that. What I am suggesting is find the key words that don't make sense to you. And once you've got a grip on those key words, now zoom out and look at the whole verse. And as you look at the whole verse, I want to encourage you to start looking at the words in that verse and figure out, okay, the Spirit meant something by these words. When I say to my wife, I want to run to the store, what do I mean by run to the store? Do I mean physically run to the store? Of course not. I don't live close enough to one, and it'd be dangerous where I live to try to run to the store. It's an expression, an idiom about going to the store. Now, what store am I talking about? She would have enough context clues in our marriage to know I'm talking about Aldi or Harris Teeter. That's pretty much the only stores I'm ever commissioned to go to. She doesn't trust me with anything else. In the Bible, I want you to look at the words, too, and start making sense of who's doing the talking, and what's the verb? What's the action? Now, here's a critical one. Look for those words that I'm calling a connective. That sounds technical, but it's really the words like but and and, or therefore, or for. Those are important, important words. Because if you make any phrase and then put a but in between, what does that actually mean? It means whatever you're about to say is refuting or changing gears from what you just said. So if you say, Dick Laubach is a great guy, but 
He's bracing himself for what's Kyler about to say next. But if I said Dick Lawbach's a great guy and, he's like, oh, good. Pile on, Kyler. Say more nice things about me. Does that make sense? You're looking for those simple words and just start taking notes of, all right, why did Jesus or why did the Spirit of God allow that word to be there? It's going to help me understand what the verse actually means. Now let's go to the whole paragraph. This is where it gets a little trickier. Because you're reading a paragraph in the Bible. You're wanting to figure out a story. For example, my sermon Sunday, I'm preaching a paragraph. It's one paragraph in the Gospel of Mark. How do I make sense of that paragraph? Some of you are wondering, Kyler, how do you preach a sermon? How do you actually make sense of the passage enough to like say it in a way that people understand? Well, one thing I always do without question is I'll take the paragraph and I will end up outlining it some way. I will try to discern what the main ideas are and I'll put it in a bullet point form. It helps me view, visualize what the author's arguing. Do you all know what a paragraph is, right? A paragraph is nothing more than a bunch of sentences that all relate together. If you had a good English teacher, do you know what she would do? She'd read your paper, and she'd see a super long paragraph, and she'd say, split it up. You've got three or four thoughts in this giant paragraph, and a paragraph virtually has one. You make your one paragraph, it might have three, four, five sentences. That paragraph has one thought, and then you indent before you get to your next one. Otherwise, the paragraph is losing its whole purpose. That's the only reason the indention exists. And so look at the paragraph. There's smart people that have paragraphed it out for us in the Bible and try to figure out what's the main idea and why would I say that's the main idea of this. So this Sunday, when I preach to you, guess what's going to happen? I, and Clint does this every Sunday as well, I will give you a main point. And do you know that main point is not something creative I just like came up with? It is my attempt at summarizing the main point of that paragraph, that passage, in a way that brings it home to you. And then every point of my sermon is basically a bullet point from that passage on why I think that's the main point. So Sunday, when you hear me say, I think I know what my main point is going to be. I, wrote my, I worked on my sermon this afternoon. I'll make my main point to you, and then I'll say a few things I want you to note. The first thing, and my first point is going to be related to that main point. Just look at the paragraph and take a stab at it. You guys can do this. You could do this on uh, any book you have on the shelf. It doesn't have to be the Bible. Why is that paragraph there? What's the main idea, and why is that the main idea? I challenge you guys to go home and try to do that. Now you're thinking, Kyler, that's going to take me a while. And if you think on earth I'm going to be able to study the chapters and the books of the Bible, I don't have time for that. Uh, here's what I would encourage you to do. When it comes to chapters, read them a few times. If you're in the middle of a chapter and you don't understand something, just take a step back and get the forest. You've been looking at the trees. It's helpful to step back. Have you ever found that to be true when you're really focused on a problem? Sometimes it helps just to get up and walk away and then come back to it and, and look at it a little bit more high level. It like resets your mind. Do that in the Bible. If you're really stuck and you don't know what's on earth is happening, just step back and you know what, I'm going to read the whole thing. And as you start reading the whole thing, things are going to start making sense. For example, in our passage this Sunday, I was thinking, man, Jesus sounds like a racist in this passage. He sounds like a misogynist. What is he doing? Until you step back, you read the whole chapter, and you quickly realize, okay, in all the verses leading up to verse 24, Jesus has been making a point that any food is clean, that you don't have to worry about all these unclean and clean foods. They're all clean. And in verse 24, he's now making the point, just like every food's clean, 
all people are clean. If you think this lady can't be saved by me because she is a Syrophoenician, she's not a Jew, she's one of the unclean people, she's a Gentile, Jesus' point is she is clean enough for me to wash clean. I'm gonna, I can save her. There's nobody that's outside my grace. Stepping back and reading the whole chapter will help you make sense. That's a context clue. And then lastly, it's actually helpful for you to read through whole books of the Bible because they were actually meant to be read in a sitting. Now, most of the New Testament books you can read relatively quickly. Old Testament books and, and some of the New Testament books, some of the Gospels are, are longer, and it'd be hard to sit there. You'd have to sit there for a few hours reading. But I want to encourage you, to the degree you can, read the highest level, biggest chunks you can. It's amazing what will come into play. How many of you guys have ever watched a little uh, preview of a TV show or of a movie? You see the preview. Now, is that preview enough? After you see that preview, you're like, that was so good, I'm satisfied. No, it's, it's a hook. You're not going to understand it until you watch the whole thing. So too, if you just isolate yourself on one verse or one paragraph or even one chapter and you don't ever take a step back and actually see the whole panoply, the whole story, the whole narrative, you're going to miss it all together. So do that. It's amazing how much you'll get. Have you guys ever found that the first time you watch a movie, you don't understand half of the things? You're like so lost. You're that annoying spouse. I'm the, actually the annoying spouse in my marriage. I'm always like, Lauren, what is happening? What is this? And she's glaring at me like, just watch it. I'm doing this with you. I don't know. I love watching movies and TV shows through the second time. I love it. I actually find it more enjoyable. Lauren hates it because I enjoy a show more if I get it all ruined at the beginning. I'm the guy that goes and looks up on Google who is going to win who wins Survivor in this season. I'll enjoy this way more if I know from the beginning who's the winner, and I'm just going to watch it the whole way through. She hates that. You'll learn that when you actually know, it makes sense of everything. And if you can get a bigger view of the Bible and start understanding the whole story, when you get into smaller sections, you are immediately relating it to the bigger story. It'll make a whole lot more sense. So I want to encourage you guys to start reading the Bible. And one of the reasons why I want you to do this is because you'll quickly learn that the Bible is not a library of 66 separate books. It is a miraculous thing. It is a true one book. There's a visual I want to throw up on the screen. You guys throw up that graph. It's going to be far enough away where you're not going to be able to see it that closely. But this graph illustrates all the verses that connect in the Bible, one to the other. I know you can't really see it, but there's 340,000 cross-references in the Bible, meaning 340,000 instances where one verse is citing or relating to another, literally. It's an amazing thing. Are any of you guys familiar with the, he's an unbeliever, but he's become quite the semi-conservative philosopher of our day, Jordan Peterson? Y'all familiar with that guy? He's pretty well known. He, he doesn't believe the Bible, but he is very sympathetic to a lot of the Bible. It's an odd thing. And he has a viral clip right now illustrating how amazing this is. And he makes the argument that the Bible was the first hyperlinked book where literally almost every verse, if you could have touched it, it would reveal a bunch of cross-references that it's connected to. This graph shows everything above the line is, a, is targeting something later. So if there's a, a line above the center line, it's saying there's an earlier verse that points to a later verse. Everything below the line is a later verse that points back to an earlier verse. Just suffice it to say, the Bible is one connected book. Now, I want to ask you, how on earth is that possible? 
if the Bible and all scholars, conservative and liberal alike, would agree, it was written over a period of 1,500 years by 39 to 40, some liberal authors will say many more than that, but even the most conservative will tell you 39 to 40 authors. That's not possible. I don't think it'd be possible if you and your spouse sat down and tried to write a book together if you guys could make something with that much connectivity. None of us communicate that well. That is evidence of the Spirit of God superintending this book. And so one of the reasons why I want you to start reading through the whole Bible and not just be devotional Christians, Christians that read a devotional or get a little truth nugget, is you're missing an absolute treasure trove, a wealth, because the Bible really is one grand story. If you are a linear person, you're one of those people that's like, Kyler, I got I to gotta, I gotta follow it in chronological order. There are great Bibles out there called chronological Bibles. You can go buy one. They're cheap. And it actually arranges the Bible in chronological order so that you start with creation and it actually moves sequentially all the way through the new heavens and the new earth at the end of Revelation. Do you all realize the Bible is not ordered chronologically? For example, do you know what the chronological end of the Old Testament is? It's actually Ezra and Nehemiah and Malachi. But Ezra and Nehemiah are in the middle of the Old Testament. Now, there's a reason why the Old Testament is arranged as it is, but I'm arguing that if you need that to help you get through it, go get a chronological Bible. There's also, if you don't want to buy a new Bible, there are chronological Bible plans that you can just, it tells you what passage to turn to next, and then you can go read it in your Bible of choice that you have at the house. Start reading through the whole Bible, for when you do, you'll start to get the grand storied context, and it'll help you make sense of a lot of things. It'll help you understand why the Exodus is talked about so many times in the Old Testament. You're like, man, they can't get over this. Why do they keep talking about this? It'll help you understand in the New Testament why Jesus has such a bone to pick with the Pharisees and Sadducees. It almost seems like he's like hurt and he just can't wait but to get back at them. Why does he keep picking on these guys? You'll understand from the whole story of the Bible why they were the example of all that was wicked. You'll understand why James would say what he would say, why Paul says what he says, why the Revelation portrays heaven the way it does. Because if you actually read Daniel and you read Ezekiel and you read Zechariah in the Old Testament all of, and Zephaniah, all of a sudden, Revelation makes a whole lot more sense. If you start reading the Bible as a whole, riches will come alive to you. My friends, context is king. You need to learn the context for if you don't, you're going to commit what is a pretty famous phrase in hermeneutics or the interpretation of the Bible. If you don't take context seriously, then you will commit this great sin, so to speak. A verse out of context is a pretext for a proof text. Let me say it simpler. If you read a verse out of context... You are teeing yourself up to say whatever the heck you want that verse to mean. That's called a proof text. A proof text is you just proving whatever you want in a Bible verse. Y'all remember two weeks ago I told you that silly story about the girl I was in college with who uh, thought the Queen of the South that Jesus describes in the Gospels was Hillary Clinton? Now, why is she wrong? What if she's right? What if it was a prophecy? I mean, there are things in the Bible we don't understand. Or maybe there's multiple meanings. Maybe it was talking about Sheba and also going to be talking about Hillary Clinton. Why is that? Because context is king. 
And a simple reading of the gospel would say, there is no way on earth that could possibly, possibly, possibly mean that. Learn the context. Let me give you one final exhortation as we go. I want to commend some resources to you to help you start taking some steps towards figuring out the context in any passage you're reading. These are kind of considered the major categories of Bible resources you should have on your shelf or at least digitally in your possession. The first thing I want to commend to you is if you do not own a study Bible, I commend you to buy one this year. If your children don't own one, buy them a study Bible for Christmas in addition to whatever you end up spending on them. Study Bibles are one of the greatest gifts in my judgment of this generation. They did not exist prior to most of our lifespan. Study Bibles are wonderful because they're the full text of the Bible with detailed footnotes explaining all the verses. I want to tell you guys the ones that I like the best. And I've read, I've gone devotionally through every major study Bible there is right now. So I'm pretty familiar with most of them. The ones that I would recommend to you more than any other are the ESV Study Bible. It's published by Crossway. I think it's the best on the market. ESV Study Bible. There's another one. Now hear me you got to find the Zondervan edition. There's a Zondervan NIV study Bible or NASB study Bible. There's also a non-Zondervan one. I wouldn't get that one. That one is not as good. The Zondervan NIV study Bible is a tremendous resource. Go get it. Or perhaps the most uh, well-known expositor still living today, John MacArthur, he has published his own entitled the MacArthur Study Bible. It's tremendous. I don't think it's as detailed as the ESV, but I reference it a lot. Go get one of those study Bibles. It will serve you well. It's a great uh, Bible to have on your lap when you get asked a question and you have no idea. There's probably going to be a footnote that's going to help you at least make sense somewhat of that verse. Study Bibles. Now, for those of you that are like, Kyler, I'm ready for more. The study Bible has almost no notes on the passage I'm trying to understand. I want more. I hear that you and Pastor Clint have an office filled with commentaries. The cumulative value of your commentaries is the value of like my first car, which is true. They're not cheap. So you're thinking, well, I don't have several thousand dollars to invest over a period of time in commentaries. What do I do? I want to encourage you guys, if you really want to get some commentaries, I'm just going to give you some broad categories. The first one I would recommend is they, there are a few single volume ones. They're like big fat books the size of a giant dictionary that have detailed notes on the whole Bible. The one out there that I think is the best is actually John MacArthur's. It's called the John MacArthur like commentary on the Bible. It's a thick book, but it's admittedly not nearly detailed. I never use it for sermon prep. When it comes to sermon prep, I want books that are on individual books of the Bible. I want a commentary on John or a commentary on 1 Kings. If you want to go there, I gave you three categories. Detailed, less detailed, and least detailed. If you want the one that's going to be helpful to you devotionally, like, man, this is, just, this is going to feed my soul, then go with the least detailed one that I call, that, rather, that is called the Christ-Centered Expository Series. They're excellent. They are thin. They read like sermons. They'll explain the Bible. They're published in most books of the Bible. We have several of them in our, uh, in our library. If you want a little bit more meat, there's a series called Preaching the Word. Go get it. They're in, published in most of the books of the Bible. They're more detailed sermon-type chapters on all these passages. And then if you're like, man, I'm ready for what pastors use. What do you guys use to really make sense of a passage? 
of the many I could recommend, the two that I think are probably the most accessible out there that aren't going to be filled with Greek and Hebrew and you're not going to understand any of it, are the MacArthur Commentary Series. I reference it often. Or Focus on the Bible. Focus on the Bible is an imprint. If you actually look at the spine of it, have any of you ever noticed there's books, Christian books, that at the very bottom of the spine, there's a red, yellow, and blue little logo at the bottom? That means it's a good book. Focus on the Bible imprint, it's Christian Focus imprint, publishes gold. Almost everything they publish is amazing. So if you see that at the bottom, buy that book. It's worth the $3 at the used bookstore. So that's a great imprint as well. Get some commentaries if you want to make sense of a study you're doing. Now, three last resources I want to quickly commend to you are what's called a concordance, a Bible dictionary, and a Bible atlas. They'll help you make sense of stuff. A concordance is basically a big book that'll tell you what verses are referenced where. If you're reading a verse and you want to know what else does the Bible have to say about this verse, a concordance will tell you virtually every other verse in the Bible. Now, here's the good news. You do not have to go buy a concordance. A, a lot of Bibles have a small one in the back of it. But if your Bible doesn't have one, we live in the age of the World Wide Web. And there are free concordances everywhere. Just type in your passage and you'll find what you need. The same goes for a Bible dictionary. You can buy one. I have one on my shelf and I've never opened it. In fact, I've got like three or four on my shelf and they just look pretty. Because the internet has all of it there. A Bible dictionary will say, you know what, Kyler? I keep reading about the Nephilim. In fact, several deacons had me over for dinner last, had Lauren and I over for dinner last night. And we did a Q&A after the meal. And one of the guys, he was kind of joking, but he said, explain to me who the Nephilim are. Yeah, that's an angelic, demonic creature described in uh, Genesis 6. And the only reason I can answer that is because many years ago, I engaged a Bible dictionary, which takes a word like Nephilim and gives an explanation, or gives an explanation of temple, or of justification, or of candelabra. What do you make of all these words? It gives a, a dictionary definition. It's almost more like an encyclopedia than a dictionary. You can find that all online. And then lastly, this will really open your eyes to the Bible, is invest in a Bible atlas. An atlas is basically helping you visually see what all you're reading about. When Jesus is going on these journeys, for example, this Sunday, I'm going to tell you all that in this passage, it's the only time in all the Bible that Jesus leaves Israel. All of his ministry is in Israel, with the lone exception of when he was a baby, his parents took him to Egypt, fleeing uh, Herod. But apart from that, his whole ministry is in Israel, except in this one paragraph that I'm preaching Sunday, he leaves and he goes to the area of Syrophoenicia, where he meets the Syrophoenician woman. Now you're thinking, I don't have any way to picture that until you get a Bible atlas. And you realize it would actually be like leaving Charlotte and going up to Statesville. And you kind of realize more like Hickory. And you're like, okay, now I got it. I can at least kind of like put some visual reference to how far he walked and what that looked like. Imagine walking to Hickory, that'd take a minute or two. Get a Bible atlas, it'll help you make sense of what you're reading. My friends, if you can commit yourself to these first three skills, learn to see, learn to read, and learn the context, you are on a good, fast track to fulfilling Christ's command to you and to I. Be diligent. Do your best to present yourself to God as a workman approved of God who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Let me pray, and then we'll call it a night. You come back next week, and we'll look at our fourth skill of understanding the Bible. Let's pray. Father in heaven, go with these dear brothers and sisters. May tomorrow they open their word. 
And may they do so with new eyes of faith, eyes that are intent to see what's really there, intent to read with action, with intentionality, and intent to understand what you have said in its context. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See you guys next week. Good night.